Hello, and welcome to The Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. Your host, Ian Andrews, is on vacation, and I'm Kim Grauer, Director of Research at Chainalysis, and I will be taking over this week. In this episode, Ian speaks to Michael Patterson, Chief Compliance Officer of Genesis. Michael explains the need for trust and strong governance when it comes to crypto and emphasizes the importance of crypto businesses leveraging functions that have been successful in traditional finance like strong KYC and AML practices and robust cybersecurity measures. And since I'm taking over, here's some interesting data me and the research team have uncovered over the past few weeks and months. Even though we're in a bear market right now and the price has been pretty flat across most assets of late, we're actually hitting all-time highs in terms of the number of transactions taking place on the blockchain. There were nearly 700 million transfers last quarter. That's 1.5x more than the same quarter in 2022. Fun fact, in every region around the world, stablecoin activity is now the predominant player in terms of transaction value and is generally accounting for more than 50% of all activity. The next fact is on average, over the past few months, we've seen nearly 50,000 daily NFT sales with an average of $26 million moving to purchase those sales in a given day. Stay tuned for the end of the podcast where I'll give you a few crime stats. Today, I'm joined by Michael Patterson, Chief Compliance Officer. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm going to start with uh, maybe the toughest question we'll get to all day. Why do compliance folks have a reputation as being the people that tell everyone no? <laughs> you know, you're a nice guy. I've met quite a few of uh, your peers across the industry, and I feel like you're the ones keeping us all from getting into uh, unreasonable trouble. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit about uh, what what do you actually do in your role at Genesis Trading and, and uh, why is that so important for the industry to get right? Yeah, well, let's, let's start with the point about... Uh, being the no guy uh, or the no gal, if we're doing our jobs well, we have a program in place such that all of the issues can be worked out as well as they can be in advance. And the tough ones then come to me. And usually the tough ones are the ones where I have to say, well, let's figure out what we can do. Let's figure out what we should do. And then if I can't think of something that works, then the answer is no. In fact, one of the most important things I do is provide some stability and provide some restraint and say no when it's necessary. And I often look back over the week or the month or go back over my team and say, where have we pushed back? Where have we been? that critical challenge and where have we said no and not that I like to say no but I like to have a few great examples of where we stopped something that needed to be stopped if I'm doing my job I'm not just saying no I'm keeping your audience doesn't see me here I'm looking across my trading floor I'm keeping them out of trouble I'm keeping my sales and trading people out of trouble by having the right nose at the right time I sense too that a big part of of the compliance discipline is about problem solving because on one hand you have a rules framework that comes from regulators and on the other hand you have business interests and hopefully most of the time those things are well aligned but in some cases you're living out on the the edge or the horizon of innovative new products or services or routes to market and the regulation almost by definition trails the innovation by months, years, regulatory lag, as we call it. In my many years, different hats have been calling it regulatory lag, and I understand it. You have two thoughts there. You know, one is about problem solving, 
and the other is about innovation. And, you know, it's funny. When you said problem solving, I think it's often we're getting into fact-finding. I want to start with fact-finding. I want to understand the situation. I want to understand all sides of the situation. I want to look at it through different lenses. But I want to come down to facts. Very often when matters come up to me, you know, we're dealing with that no situation. We're dealing with emotions. And one of the things I try to do is slow down the process, get to the facts, and I'd like to believe that reasonable people, if they look at the same facts, they'll come to the same conclusion. Now, we all have different motivations. Somebody can be motivated by a commission. Somebody can be motivated by a fee. But I also have to look at the, the firm's interests, the customers, the clients, the counterparty's interests in the long term. So I'm starting with fact-finding and understanding the situation and then coming up with the right answer. Now, maybe that's problem solving, but to me, problem solving starts with fact finding. And then the other thing you mentioned is innovation, especially in this industry. And you, you know I come from traditional finance. I come from dealing with the largest banks. But in crypto, we're dealing with incredible innovation. I'm dealing with a lot of young people who are very aggressive. And the innovators right now are crunching up against the traditional norms. The innovators are crunching up against people like me and the chief risk officer and others in governance. And the innovators are crunching up against the regulators. And that's, that's a lot of what we're reading about in the paper now. Um, but yeah, a lot of it's problem solving. A lot of it is fact finding. And then a lot of it is just working with the innovators to come up to, well, how are we going to innovate? But I have to do it within the norms of what's going to work long term in this ecosystem. It's absolutely the challenge we'll get into today. I'm, I want to step back, though, because I think your background is so interesting here. I would guess if we pulled a number of our listeners and said, in the range of risk-taking to risk-averse, where does your average compliance person fall? You would probably be on the risk-averse side, would be the, the general sense. But your own experience here, two decades at Arthur Anderson, 12 years at EY, and in the last year and a half, you jumped into the crypto industry. What led you to pursue this angle after such a long and successful career building compliance functions across the, the traditional finance world? What attracted you to crypto? So I am a more risk averse person. Yeah, our fictional That's poll, guess, guess correctly. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's in my DNA. And I've been working on, I'll say, risk management, maybe not so much risk aversion, but risk management for most of my career, even when I was an, uh, an accountant, an auditor many, many years ago. But directly to your question, what pulled me into this is uh, I retired from leading a, a risk management compliance practice for many years. And then I started spending more time talking to my youngest son, who is like an economics blockchain major graduating from USC, that is crypto heavily blockchain guy. And as father son talked a lot about a process, I got really interested in it. And I said, hey, look, this, this is the next step of my career, the next step of my life. What am I going to do with it? So what I wanted to do is to take everything I knew about risk management, all of my history building compliance programs in traditional finance, and bring that into uh, the crypto firm. And then I, I met people in the industry that said, yeah, this is a need. So that's what actually brought me into Genesis you know, a little over a year ago. Amazing timing. When I joined Chainalysis, it was a little before you jumped into Genesis. So I was January of 21. My first year in the industry, things were up only. And I think my big takeaway, kind of as I reflected at the end of that first year, was 
wow, I've arrived at this place that seems almost certain to have massive long-term impact on the way finance works around the world. And incredibly exciting. And I think I was maybe not as focused or aware of the things that were going on in the industry that obviously unfolded throughout 2022. And so maybe I ended last year a little more measured perspective on the the challenges that lie ahead, but still convinced there's quite a bit of opportunity out there. I'm kind of curious, you know, a year into your experience, where do you sit reflecting back on, on the last year in the crypto industry? So I've been through a number of major crises. You know, I remember the dot-com crisis. I, I was, I was in one of my jobs. I was at Merrill Lynch for three years, and right through the financial crisis of 2009. I mean, I remember, I remember working Saturday night, the Lehman weekend, when everything was falling apart. You know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen in the financial services industry. I wasn't sure what was going to happen in the American global economy. So I've seen ups and ups and ups, only to have a down again. And what I find is really interesting, if you go even further back in financial history, is that the financial services industry and governments and regulators learn from this. You know, we learned from the Great Depression, which brought us the Securities Act of 1933 and 34, all of the Commodity Exchange Act, all of these major improvements that helped the resiliency of the financial services system. And then coming out of the crisis of 2009, we had Dodd-Frank and you know, different people on different sides of politics will argue that, but we still had some major improvements. And, and I'll tell you, when I started with EY and focused on compliance management and building up the compliance risk services, Myself and my colleagues have spent so many hours working with the major banks, building greater resiliency and compliance, building better compliance functions, and others built better capital management functions, better liquidity functions, better governance. So if you look at 2009 through where we're at in banking and other areas of financial services, there have been, there have been tremendous improvements in resiliency and governance. And I think that's going to happen in the crypto area. I think the struggles we've been having is an emerging growth industry that's going through the stress of adaptation. And that adaptation will include bringing in many more, I'll say, traditional practices that will help crypto, that will help the whole infrastructure, the whole ecosystem. It's great to point out that kind of cyclical nature of the financial services world is not localized to crypto, but has been going on forever. And I feel like perhaps... I'm curious on your perspective, you know, did the industry short circuit some of the things that we learned, you know, skip over them uh, from the 08 financial crisis or previous periods of, of failure of the systems? Because I think a lot of people point at the original rise of crypto. It kind of came out of the ashes of 08, right? That was the Bitcoin white paper in 09. And so there's a kind of underlying pervasive sense of, oh, we're rebuilding this because the current system doesn't work well enough. We're going to fix all the problems. But it seems apparent from where we sit today that we obviously haven't solved every problem. That's right. Well, well uh, we've missed some things, right? Yeah, I think maybe we did skip over a few things. I think let's take what's good in innovative in crypto. And the markets will decide this over the years. The markets will decide this. Is blockchain beneficial? Is crypto beneficial? But if it's going to be beneficial, it's also going to have to work within a framework that's also been successful over years. Now, success is not perfect. 
but you know it's it's an ongoing pursuit but there are certain things that crypto must do i'll say in order for the industry to grow to its full potential and many of the innovators in crypto are, are young people which is great and they haven't seen the crises the way others have ha have uh, you know the, the economist had a great article last week that touched on generational change and we need the younger people because they're innovative they're risk takers they will create they will destroy something and create again and then we also need the older generations that have this accumulated knowledge this cumulative experience that can help balance that and if we just had the older people like me economies would ossify we would we would grind to a halt because there'd be no creativity there'd be no innovation just had innovation without some level of control and risk management, then you have blow-ups. So I think it's getting that balance is what we may be learning through this process. And maybe we did skip over a few things and maybe now it's time to catch up. If you evaluate the industry and could wave a wand and make three changes or, or lay out a framework and we could get a large group of people on board with it, what would be the things that you would call out that we need to, to bring into crypto to recover from the lows of 2022? I think it's all about bringing trust into the system. Now, trust is a different regulators, different groups have different phrases. I think Fed banking regulators often call it safety and soundness. You know, securities regulations will call about suitability. But I think there are some basic practices that definitely apply here. And this is what I'm working on. One of them is just good corporate governance, which is good critical challenge so that disinterested parties have an opportunity internally to challenge a new idea, challenge a new product, challenge a new way of doing something. So that there's good debate, a good board that challenges management, good risk committees internally that challenge management. I think that's one element. And then the other elements very important to this industry is good anti-money laundering practices and starting with, and this is the, the most boring thing, but it's the hottest thing, it's a good KYC program. And I will tell you, the more people I speak with around the industry that are important to the industry, the more we're talking about solid KYC. Who are our customers and do we have the right customers? And I'll argue that that's a global issue. Nobody is exempt from that. There's no free pass on knowing your customer. Then the other hot issue I think is very strong cybersecurity. I mean, this is a data intensive, technology intensive, innovative area. It's moving quickly, but it can't out a good cybersecurity program. It can't outpace good audits of the code to make sure that market participants can trust the protocols or trust the technology that you have internally. So I think strong cybersecurity is also very important. One of the founding premises, or at least it gets talked about this way, because I, I obviously wasn't really in the crypto industry when things first got off the ground, was this idea of unlimited access, decentralization. Any Anyone can access the network and move digital assets anywhere in the world, very low or, or zero fees. That was kind of the, the founding premise. And kind of built into that was no gatekeepers. How do you square the need for KYC with that founding ethos of crypto? It feels like they might be a little bit incompatible. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? I think there's a balance. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not binary. I am all for greater access especially in, I'll just say, underserved communities and underbanked parts of the world, in areas where citizens and 
corporations need greater access to move funds quickly at a lower cost. I think that's the promise of crypto. It's one of the promises of DeFi. But there's this other extreme that is complete open access in a sophisticated, a reasonably sound ecosystem that can't work because it'll be a haven for those that are being locked out elsewhere. You know, if I have a jurisdiction that says anything goes here, who's going to show up? So I think it's important that we strike a proper balance between greater access, and I think that's very much available, but also having the right screens on the front end to make sure I have reasonable participants who are part of the system. We've recently had some guests on the podcast who operate in the privacy technology area, uh, notably the, the CEO of Ironfish Foundation. And we got into a very interesting discussion about the delineation between anonymity and privacy. And I think the nature of the public ledgers that power most of the cryptocurrencies we're using today, it has skewed this conversation in an unusual way. And so I, I draw it back to this analogy, like if you and I were in line at a, at a shop, the corner bodega in Manhattan, and I tap my credit card, that transaction is not anonymous, right? The storekeeper has some information they've collected to do inventory management and cash management. The point of sale system has some information, probably running a fraud check and validating the card's legitimate. The merchant network, like Visa or MasterCard, they're looking at the transaction for a variety of things. The issuing bank is then debiting my checking account or charging my credit card balance. Like there's at least four or five parties that I can think of off the top of my head that are participants in that transaction and have full knowledge of it. But then everybody else who's in the store waiting in line behind us and shopping, they don't know our entire history of every transaction we've ever made just because they happen to be you know, standing next to us when we checked out. And they don't know anything about our bank account balances. And when you now shift into the world of ledger technology like Bitcoin or Ethereum, suddenly you do have that ability. Like if you know one transaction and you know the owner of that wallet, you can get every transaction they've ever made forever and all their counterparties. And so I think that's led us into this weird corner of like, well, I can't possibly let anyone associate my real world identity to my wallet because then I'm giving up all this information that generally it's been accepted as private. And so I think there's a wave of technology coming that starts to solve this. And the thing I wonder is if we can actually enable guarantee of privacy in the sense that it exists today in, in most you know healthcare and financial transactions. Does that get us over this hump of, of anti-KYC sentiment, right? I'm willing to give you my identity if I know that I'm not giving it to the whole world. Well, we've been doing that for years, for decades. There are privacy regulations as well as KYC regulations, and people are entitled to their privacy. But in society, we're not entitled to pure anonymity. Uh, because we're choosing to live in society and we want society to work well. And you gave the example of the bodega. The one I'm thinking about is driving down the highway. Everybody knows I'm driving down the highway if I'm driving at 55, 65, or 75. If I'm driving 85 or 95, I'll let the police know who I am, <laughs> right? They, they will figure out who I am. So I have the right to be private and not know who's sitting in the uh, whatever car I'm driving. 
but I don't have the right, if I'm using the public highway where there are other people on it and other people at risk if I'm not behaving properly, I don't have the right to pure anonymity. So I do think we have to strike this balance. Look, this is an innovative industry with wallets and crypto and different technologies, but we still have the privacy laws. I still have GDPR. I still have the California rules. I still have other rules that are going to be, going to be coming. So we're going to have to strike the balance on that and we're going to look for technology to help us do that. One of the big topics the last few weeks in crypto has been on this delineation of which tokens might be securities and which are commodities. And setting that aside, because I don't think the two of us will be able to figure out the answer to this question on the podcast, I'm more interested in how you think about, as a compliance officer, the implications for one or the other direction becoming the, the rule in the land. And like, what does that mean as you build the business, the customers you interact with, the systems and controls that you have to put in place. I imagine it's quite a bit different depending on how that landscape ultimately plays out. At the industry level, my advice to others would be to have good tests that their legal counsel helps them with to delineate between what a coin is and what it isn't, what a token is, what it isn't. And I think if a firm has a rigorous review process, I work with that and I work with what the output is of the rigorous review process. I'm not a lawyer. I don't go through the Howey test and, you know, I'm not in the middle of SEC's litigation. They have a point of view and others have a point of view, but our job as compliance officers to make sure that we have a good, thorough assessment that's being done by qualified professionals and that it looks like we're doing the right job. And that's what I tell others to do. But as this industry innovates, this is one of the crunches that we're seeing. You know, the, the news from last week with the SEC and their litigation, this is the hard growing pains of an industry that's innovating. And guidance will be helpful, but short of clearer guidance, maybe that'll come out later on. We're working through uh, good processes to make our own good decisions. Do you think that the crypto industry is being held to a higher standard than traditional finance? And I, and I ask this in the framing of, it's hard for me to think about one of the big global banks that hasn't in the last two decades run into an issue where, you know, they had a customer that was using the platform for something like money laundering or some other illicit funds transmission and, you know, they didn't catch it or for whatever reason, you know, they end up paying a fine and, eventually everybody moves on, right? And it's sort of like, hey, you shouldn't do that. You need to be better in the future. And I'm, I'm obviously making a little bit light of the the, sure, sure, the situations. Sure. But it seems like in crypto, where similar thing occurs, right? You have bad actors abusing, a, say, an exchange platform, or you know somebody is running some sort of fraud. The narrative is not, oh, this entity is bad. It's crypto is bad, and therefore crypto shouldn't exist. That feels like we're uh, maybe overreached by people that are taking that position. What do you think? Let's separate the questions. You have two great points yeah. in there. First is the question, is crypto being held to a higher standard than traditional finance? And then we can get about the narrative about the reputation. And make sure I remember both of them, by the way. The, I'll, I'll bring you back yeah, to the second yeah, one for right, sure. Very good, very good. I spent many years working with major banks. And if I'm at a major bank, it's because they're having major challenges with their supervisor. So I spent a lot of time I'm helping major firms deal with significant matters from regulators that were holding them to a very high standard. And much of it was anti-money laundering. That was a big deal. I put three kids through college on that, on that type of work. So they felt that they were being held to a very high standard. And, you know, quite frankly, they're still being held to a high standard. And I think that's 
good for the financial services ecosystem. So I think the stress or the focus on crypto regulation, uh, we may not always like the way it's working out, but I don't think it's a higher standard or a more critical or a more harsh standard than what traditional finance has faced. Then let's talk about the reputation or the secondary noise. You know, I remember the early days of when derivatives became popular. I don't remember which decade this was, maybe the early 80s, but derivatives are a bad thing. And that's because people didn't understand them. And they were innovative and they were new in traditional finance. The rap was against derivatives many years ago, and now it's just a standard important part of the of society, of the ecosystem. And then I remember hedge funds. Hedge funds, what's a hedge fund? What are they doing? Now hedge funds are a standard part of our financial services uh, ecosystem. So I think anything that is new and innovative, especially when there's volatility, is going to have a bad rap, and people just have to learn more about it. Now, crypto is particularly difficult because uh, even I, when you know, I have to explain to somebody in my family, what's a cryptocurrency? You know, it's a 10-minute explanation and, and I'm trying to keep it simple. But I think it's that little bit of newness, the fear of something that's complex, and then it's magnified by some elements of the press say it over and over again. My kids like to, uh, like to tell people that their dad works in imaginary money. <laughs> Which may be both the best and the worst explanation of cryptocurrency ever. Yeah. I'm curious, how does your job differ from when you were building these compliance programs for traditional banks to being in the cryptocurrency industry? Does the nature of the technology itself change the scope of the work? Does it make it easier or harder in any particular way? I'll answer that two ways. I'll say 70% of it is the same because I'm dealing with a compliance program and I'm using all the similar elements. But the harder part, maybe the other 30%, is me learning crypto. Slow down, walk me through decentralized finance. You know, slow down, walk me through what the, uh, the coin committee does. So I think it forces people like me to learn more quickly. And it goes back to your, one of your opening points, and that is to slow down and understand the facts. How does this work and, 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 and what's taking place here? So the nature of my job is very similar, but with an entirely new innovation and in technology. And also then, of course, dealing with great volatility. I started here the day that Terra Luna melted down, and I wasn't really expecting that to happen. In one lens, you know, maybe I'm very unlucky, but in another lens, this is the way I'm looking at it, I'm actually very lucky because I'm in the middle of a year where people really needed my help, and I found that I can really contribute, and people listened. That's amazingly positive perspective, everyone. Yeah, it took me a while to get that. that it took me, it took, <laughs> that, that didn't come to me right away. <laughs> It's also really interesting to hear you say, you know, 70% of what you're doing is probably the, you know, very similar to what you were doing in, in previous roles. And I guess it strikes me that in the, the world of a trading firm or a centralized exchange, like those aren't worlds apart from the organizations that exist in tr traditional finance. A big bank, a brokerage house, a trading desk, they, they have similar kind of functions and, and inputs and outputs. When you think about DeFi, and I say this without, I can't think of a single compliance officer that works at a DeFi protocol or a foundation or a DAO supporting that structure. I'm curious is, do you see compliance and DeFi as being mutually exclusive or incompatible fundamentally? Not incompatible it's in the early, I'll say it's in the early stages of their evolution. DeFi has the potential to be one of the great use cases of blockchain technology. There is tremendous potential there. 
But I'll argue not to its extreme and not that I just have a protocol that's just operating on its own because many people are using the protocol. Many significant sums of money get invested or get worked through the protocol. So it has to be such that it's safe and sound to work with. So are they knowing their customers? Are they doing the appropriate cybersecurity checks? Are they auditing their code? Are they in a jurisdiction where I, I know where to go to if I have a claim? I think that there are some basic tenants that can be brought to DeFi. And I'll suggest this. And DeFi doesn't do this. It'll remain on the fringes. If DeFi adopts the right practices, it'll grow along with the ecosystem, and the promise of this new innovation will really be very powerful. But it has some things to do in order to achieve such power. There's this interesting like bootstrapping moment that we may be in here right now. And when I think about the world of DeFi and how it relates to traditional finance, there was a moment pre-Terra Luna collapse where we were all trying to puzzle about uh, when will TradFi institutional money come into this space? You know, it felt like beginning of 2022, we were kind of on the cusp of that. You could see everybody was talking about it and they were exploring potential to get there. I think some of that is pulled back or at least is hesitating on the brink as the market has gone through some of its challenges. But I think the real catalyst, and maybe this launches us into the next great crypto market expansion bull run, is the shift you're talking about, where DeFi becomes safe for TradFi institutional money, which is such a large pool of capital. If that enters, it, it sort of changes the game entirely. Ian, say that over and over again. Do the crocheting and knit it and put it in a frame and put it behind your desk and sell that at the next links conference i don't know you're reminding me of a discussion i had decades ago with a gentleman a good friend of mine who was at one of the major hedge funds but it was still the early days of hedge funds and it was one of my first projects at ey and come on in and we need policies and procedures for but he started to need some basic infrastructure and i was shocked uh, howard you're always pushing against this you know you're always too cheap too fast too and he said, my institutional investors are demanding this. And to me, that light went on, and that was a turning point for governance and control in hedge funds, because it was the institutional investors that were demanding governance, risk, control, and compliance. If they were going to put X millions, tens of millions of dollars or pension money into these funds, they had to believe that there was security, safety, and sound. And the comment you just made, I think, just, just reminded me of that discussion many years ago. And I think it's a very similar evolution, a very similar pattern. It's going to be exciting to, to see that happen. I think a number of folks involved with DeFi protocols that are trying to drive in that direction, and it'll be a great outcome if we can get there. I would welcome it. I think it'd be fantastic. And I think it will be the next great innovation in this uh, sector. I'm curious as we wrap up, when you think about the next year, you've just come through year one, what's on your mind for year two? What things that are uh, drawing your attention and your focus or that you're anticipating and excited about as you look to what's coming up in the next 12 months? I think it's really seeing the one we just talked about is probably the number, number one item. I just need to focus on continual evolution of the function, continual diligence on getting to a safe and sound and secure 
function. And you know, there's no end to this. There's no stopping point where you say, okay, we're done. We're well controlled. It's, it's, it's almost like what Thomas Jefferson wrote into the Declaration of Independence. He didn't say you're entitled to happiness as a right. It's the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> and, and it's a constant pursuit of building functions, building control such that people can trust the system. Now, as soon as we do that, there'll be a new customer segment, a new product, a new geography. Something will change and we'll find some gap that we need to close and we will continue on that pursuit. But to me, what's most important for the next year is to continue the pursuit of a strong compliance program, but maybe even more important, building trust in the system. So our role is to build trust in the system. And that's actually your firm has the role of building trust in the system. We think that's very important. So uh, maybe the headline here is trust in the system. I love it. The pursuit of trust in cryptocurrency. We've coined <laughs> a new tagline right here on the show. <laughs> we uh, have to get some like a uh, yellow paper and write it in that's hand, right. hand, right? That's Send right. Send it to the uh, Congress. That's right. Michael, this has been uh, fantastic. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key with our host, Ian Andrews. Check out all the amazing research and content our team is putting out over various platforms, including our new TikTok and our revamped YouTube. And of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Now I know you all were thinking it, but I'm gonna give you a few crime data tidbits. Ransomware activity is back on the rise after a two-year cooling off period, and there are no signs of it slowing down. You might have been hearing lately that cyber criminals are moving to different assets and away from Bitcoin. And we want to do some myth busting here. In reality, the answer of which token is preferred by criminals depends. For example, scammers are still going after Bitcoin, but now that's actually only the second most scammed asset. The first has moved to stablecoins. Ransomware, on the other hand, is still mostly denominated in Bitcoin transactions. Hacking is a free-for-all. Hackers steal whatever is available to them, whatever they can get access to, and whatever the private keys allow them to steal. If you read our mid-year crime report, you'll see this as well. All other crime categories appear to be trending down when we look at the year-on-year -year crypto data. And each category is impacted by different social and economic factors. To read more on these topics and to get the full story on some of the data covered, feel free to head down to the links in the show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in.